Chris Story, and you're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. How to create wealth where you are with what you've got. In life, as in real estate, how far you end up going is limited only by one thing. That's your imagination. Rudy wanted to know recently if I liked being in the storage business. Absolutely. I really do. And I answered his question very honestly and very quickly. I said, yeah, I love it. It's a fantastic investment. But it's only one arrow in our overall quiver. And I do know some people, though, that, I mean, I have 85 units. I know some people that have hundreds of units. In fact, there are people across this great nation that actually have thousands of storage units in their portfolio. And they've gone all in, like 110%. It's a clean business. It's a clean rental option, relatively. It's relatively passive, also, it's a passive investment with one caveat. It's a business, and with like any business, it has moving parts. So the storage business as a real estate investment has upside and challenges. And I'll, I'll tell you just a couple of the challenges is when times are tight or somebody's having a rough time in their life, that $60, $80, a month storage unit that's warm and dry might actually become an abode for somebody for a temporary, albeit illegal place to stay for a little while. So those are some challenges you have to deal with. Another challenge is dealing with the personal effects. And this I didn't realize. See, I'd managed a storage unit about 20 years ago. In fact, the very one I would go on to buy. And one thing I didn't take into consideration as a manager back then, as I do now as an owner, is how difficult it is, absolutely how difficult it is to remove people's personal possessions for lack of payment. It's heartbreaking. And so what we do is give every opportunity to a fault, to, to make good, make up, just come get your things. Just, okay, you can't pay what you owe, just come get your stuff, best we can. But there are times that you have to remove pe people's personal things and take it to Salvation Army, take it to a thrift store, take it to some salvage area. And we've made a commitment not to benefit from that, so we hire somebody to help us with it, and we do not benefit. Now, the day a diamond ring or a trunk full of gold bullions is, is discovered, yeah, well, I'll get back to you on that. But that, that's one piece of advice I gave to Rudy. The other thing, and I want to share with you, is that if you're considering being in the storage business as a real estate investment, location. You've heard the old adage, location, location, location. In real estate, it, that is absolutely true. Tried, but true. However, with storage, it's almost even more true because convenience is a huge part of what people are paying for. Security, but also convenience. So you want to make sure that you locate your storage facility. If you're going into this business, you want to make sure you locate in the way of people, in the path of people, where people are today, but also where are they going to be? Because if you locate in the wrong place, then you'll die on the vine. Progress will pass you by, make it inconvenient. If you're inconvenient, you're not going to succeed in the storage business. So that was my advice to Rudy. I'll pass that advice right along to you. Now, what's the best way, if not just passivity, what's the best way to measure an investment? The return on any investment has to be measured personally. So I suggest to any ROI that you add a P. You add the personal element. 
And that's what I love about real estate. It's what I love about the idea of investing in real estate over any other kind of investment. There's a lot out there, businesses, stocks, bonds, gold, cryptocurrency, which I tried to say with a straight face. There's a lot of investments out there. But the thing about real estate that will always stand head and shoulders above almost any other investment is the ability to put your own personhood into it, to put your own personal touch on it, measure your return based on your own personal desire. Now, I want you to take into consideration you can measure your own return based on what you want, but I don't want, never would I suggest to you that you delude your own self, that you would somehow live in some delusional state where, oh, it didn't matter to me. I'll give you an example. My dad and I were talking one day to a guy. This guy owned a triplex. And he, he was a clerk at a store, and we were both standing there in front of him at the counter. And I don't remember what we were buying, what we were doing, but I'll never forget these words that the gentleman who owned the triplex said. And my dad and I looked at each other. The minute he said it, the second he said it, he said, and a quote here, well, you don't want to make money in real estate. And we looked at each other, and this is going back like 25 years ago. And it was, it was funny because he wasn't wrong, but it was the way he said it and what he actually meant. What he meant was, oh, you don't want to make any money. I'm losing money every month with my investment, and that's a good thing. That's what he was saying, but it isn't true. What you don't want is a paper income. <laughs> you want the income, but on paper, you want to be able to use depreciation and in things, write-offs and things like that to, to write down your income. But you want the building to make you money. You want your investment to be yielding something, cash flow positive. Of course, that's what you want. You just don't want to have to pay tax on it. You want to be able to legally defer whatever you possibly can through depreciation. And remember, that is deferment. Depreciation doesn't, you don't get off scot-free. I was, in fact, talking to somebody uh, just the other day, and, and they were saying how they were going to pay some recapture. Well, recapture is depreciated savings over the years of ownership. The IRS gets it back. If you when you go to sell, we're going to talk about 1031 exchanges and the beauty of 1031 exchanges a little bit later in the broadcast. But I want to just come back to this point about personal return on investment. That guy's personal return on investment that he was sharing with us was I'm losing money every month. I'm hemorrhaging money and I like it. Well, it's a misunderstanding of the concept of not making money, uh, at least not showing money being made. He misunderstood it, but that's okay because it was his personal return on investment. He had a job. He was able to subsidize it. So he was able to do it. My admonition to you is to compare apples to apples. As you think about this investment, as you think about your return, what return do you want? Use an apple to compare to another apple, not oranges. Because it, it, for example, if you take what Keith Cunningham said, a small percentage of a large number is a large number, right? Small percentage of a large number is a large number. Who is to say what percent of a return on your investment you should get but you? And the amount of leverage you'll employ in that is going to make a big difference. So if you're getting a small net return on a very large number with a small amount of cash investment, that is going to equal a large return. Compare that to somebody who's buying cash, everything for cash, and they've got maybe 30, 40, 50 million cash available. Well, that's not an apple to an apple. That's an, that's an orange, or maybe you would even go so far as to say a plantain. 
I remember Dr. Roos was giving a talk recently, and he said something about commercial property. By the way, later in the broadcast, we will be doing a direct deep dive comparison into commercial versus residential real estate. So be sure to stay tuned for that. But, but Dolph was saying of commercial property, he said, even in his wonderful New Zealand accent, which I'll not try to mimic right here. I used to do that. I used to have about 11 to 12 voices I would put in my repertoire until I applied or auditioned for a teleplay. And they asked me to do a, a uh, Irish or Scottish brogue. And, and then the director and the casting person said, okay, well, that was terrible, but we'll find something for you. So I'm not going to use his little New Zealand accent, although it is precious. He said, if I had $20 million cash available, I still wouldn't buy this building, this commercial building he was talking about for all cash. And he doesn't have $20 million sitting in a bank. You know what Dolph has? Almost $100 million at work for him in real estate. And he said, if I had $20 million, I'm not going to go put it down in this building. But if he put down, say, one or two million on a $20 million building and it were to go up by just a couple of percent. That's a large number of the 20 million, even though he has a small percentage invested. That's what I love about measuring your own personal return on investment. Stay tuned. We've got your millionaire management segment coming up in just a little bit and what's in your library and what on earth is a mental millionaire and why do Egyptians shave their eyebrows? I'll tell you that and much more when we return to the Backyard Millionaire. Stay tuned. What a glorious day it is. I, I had this opportunity. By the way, you're listening to the Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. I'm Chris Story along with Mr. David Webb. I was talking to a New York Times bestselling author. Is there anything more pretentious than starting a sentence with that? I was talking with a New York Times bestselling author this morning, but it's true. I can't help it. I received a book in the mail. And in the back flap, on the very, very, very back page, it's a book I'd ordered. It's not like it was just sent to me. I ordered the book. And in the back page was this little tiny note about this guy's contribution to the book. And he and I have exchanged emails many times. And so I emailed him and I said, hey, I just saw your name in the back of this book. How cool is that? What was it like working with this guy? What was it like working with this Anyway, it's because it's a phenomenal book. The prior book that this other guy had written sold 25 million copies. And so he went on to talk about the experience and just that it was amazing. And they went to this lake, this, this author's home on a beautiful secluded lake. And this other really famous person came over and they spent this long week together hashing out ideas and everything. I thought, man, is that not idyllic? And just then I realized, I looked around my library, I looked around my home, and I was like, you know what, I cherish what I've got right here where I am. And that is the essence, that is the heartbeat of becoming a backyard millionaire, is to appreciate what you've got where you are. And so that takes us to the mental millionaire. John walked into a diner. <laughs> just kidding. Look, if you're seeking financial independence, and who isn't, the first thing you've got to do is become mentally independent. Jim Rohn said it best, if somebody comes along and hands you a million bucks, you better hurry up and become a millionaire. So what are the traits of a millionaire? What is a mental millionaire? And how can you adopt the traits of and thoughts of a millionaire? There can't be that many. 
I mean, there are books and books written about the, um, what was the, the millionaire next door, everyday millionaires. There's, there's a, a, a whole list of books you could get to really deep dive into the janitor who became a millionaire and left $38 million to a particular institution of their choice. But what are the traits that can lead to that kind of financial independence and success if you want it? So the traits of a millionaire as I put on paper, I, I just picked the four. And I said, I think these four traits are what matters most. And so number one, the first trait of a millionaire is that millionaires are seeker, seekers of solutions. My grandfather left me a book in his library and it, it was called How to Make Money. Is that not the greatest title of book you've It was written in 1953, How to Make Money. That was it. That was the title, How to Make Money. Who wouldn't buy that book? And my grandfather did and kept it in his library. I've got it. And in it, there's a six-word formula for making money. And it's find a need and fill it. So the trait of millionaires is to seek solutions. That can be in communications, that can be in real estate, housing, commercial, storage, as we were talking about earlier. That can be in telecommunications, that can be in sending us to, to Mars, seeking solutions. It could be as simple as just your basic solution in your own backyard to what Elon Musk is doing, putting us on Mars. So seeker of solutions, this is the trait, the first trait of becoming a mental millionaire. And the money will follow. Second trait, visualize. Visualize where you're going. That's what millionaires do. They don't worry about it. Have you ever noticed that, that millionaires and billionaires do not worry about how they're going to get there? I mean, honestly, if just going back to Elon Musk for a moment, if Elon had said, and what is he worth? As of this recording, what is he worth? $145 billion, whatever it is, in 2023. Could change tomorrow. But at this juncture, do you think when he started SpaceX, he said, I know exactly, I know precisely, I know every spot along the map between here and Mars. Now let's go do it. No, he said, that's the destination. Now let's figure it out. Visualize where you're going. You'll figure out how to get there. The map will present itself. Jack Canfield said very wisely, you can drive across the United States of America only seeing as far as your headlights can go at night. You could drive all the way across America at night only with seeing 100 yards in front of your car at any given time. And you can get from one coast to the other because if you visualize where you're going, you'll get there. The third trait of a millionaire would be to blur the lines between work and life. Um, there's a great special, I can't remember, I think it's on HBO, but there's a really interesting special about Richard Branson. Going back from his founding days of Virgin Records, prior to that student magazine, when he dropped out of high school and started student magazine. For a dyslexic, that's an incredible feat to start with, but then moved on to Virgin Records, stores and, and a recording label, then obviously the airline, water, telecommunications, everything that Richard Branson's got. And it's really interesting to watch this documentary of his life because you can so easily see that there are almost no distinctions between his life and business, between his life and his passion and his work, his marketing and his life are all in one. The lines are blurred. So to become a mental millionaire, blur the lines between work and life, 
And I think you'll start. You remember those? I mean, there's probably a term, and I can't remember what they're called, but these pictures that came out a while back, like in the 90s, and you would have to stare at this conglomeration of whatever it was. It didn't look like anything, and you would stare at it for a little bit, and suddenly this, this image would pop out at you in 3D, and you could see it suddenly. Those were so frustrating to me because I couldn't, I couldn't relax my eyes enough to see it, and then, boom, one day I could. I think that's the same thing that millionaires and billionaires and decamillionaires People that have what you want to achieve in life have done and figured out is to blur the lines between work and life. And then fourthly, so running down our, our mental millionaire list, the traits of a millionaire, seeking solutions, visualizing where you're going, blurring the lines between your life and work. And fourth, and hold on, before I give you the fourth, think about that, blurring the lines between life and work. Talk about work-life balance. I've interviewed a lot of people over the years that have talked about work-life balance, written books or blog posts or articles about work-life balance. And it's almost impossible to balance that unless you can blur those lines and see that, it's, that there is no real distinction. You are who you are and how you show up. How you do anything is how you do everything. All right, moving on. Number four, the fourth trait of a millionaire. Not motivated by money but motivation comes in the form of challenge, the challenge. What is the challenge? If it's not money, and you know that can sound, for somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, to hear somebody who does have a lot of money say, I'm not motivated by money, can be a little irritating. <laughs> it could be a little like, are you for real? Hmm, I wonder if you really mean that. But I think, I think it's true. I think that, that it is the challenge that motivates somebody beyond more, just more than enough. Like when you're not fighting for survival, when your needs are met, your hierarchical needs are mostly met, I think then beyond much more money than that, it, it becomes a game. And I'm going to give you a quote from a friend of mine, a DECA millionaire, and this is an exact quote. Chris, I've got enough money to last me for the rest of my life, but I love this game so much. I have enough money for the rest of my life, quote, but I love this game so much. Well, what is the game? Well, the game for him was growth, was expansion. How much service can I provide? How much can I contribute? That's exactly the game he was talking about. And I think truly, I think that person, and I've known this person a long time, they became a millionaire, deca millionaire, long before they had the seven figures, before they had the investments worth millions of dollars. I went to work with a coach 14 years ago. So I'd been on, been on the radio for a little while and I wanted, I wanted to improve, I wanted to, I wanted to know more. And I ran across this woman's book and I read the book and I emailed her and I said, this book was written for me. It was called Creating Powerful Radio. I said, I felt like you wrote this book for me. Like you were talking to me. And to my surprise, she emailed me back. And we started a correspondence and immediately thereafter started a relationship where she provided coaching. And that's been 14 years. We still work together. In fact, we have coming up in two weeks, we'll be together again. And she said something to me that I'll never forget on our first session. And it sounded like hyperbole a little bit. But I had big ambitions, I had goals, I could see where I was going, I wanted to find a solution. There is no line for me between this microphone and my life, so I feel like I blurred the lines there, and 
I would do this for free. I love it. So I'm not motivated by the money. To me, it's the challenge of this, this radio show and, and creating whatever I can and contributing whatever I can and, and expansion. So for me, I, oh, look, I'm fitting all those needs. But I, even back then, and I knew, I knew that I wanted to grow into something else. But her words were so powerful. And again, I wasn't 100% sure that I could take them at their face value. But here's what she said to me. And, and now I do understand it. She said, Chris, I can't wait to see how tall of a tree you grow into. And she meant in a broadcast way. That is so cool, thinking about that, looking back on it. So play the game to win. For sure, if you play not to lose, you're likely not going to win that much. So play the game to win and adopt these traits of becoming a millionaire, a mental millionaire. And I, I promise you, I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind, the money will follow. It's there and it's waiting for you. We are working on a, I don't want, do I call it a book? I'm going to call it a pamphlet. We're working on a pamphlet here at Story Productions, and it's called Millionaire Management. We've got another production called The Millionaire Maker, which is being revised as we speak. But these small pamphlets, these booklets, I think is a better way to call it, maybe a booklet. It's 35 pages to 40 pages. And Millionaire Management is going to comprise two key elements, and I want to share them with you right now. So to manage real estate like a millionaire, to manage real estate professionally yourself, you need these two elements worth, worth remembering. Number one, always, always, always manage your own property to start with. You do not want to have somebody else manage your property. If you've never managed property, you must obey this, this law of millionaire management. You must manage your own property to start with. That's step one in millionaire management. The second most important thing to remember about managing like a millionaire, your real estate portfolio, you ready? Step two, never stop managing your own property even if you delegate rent collection. And what I mean to say is you can delegate the rent collection to a bank, you can set up accounts where monies are deposited on your behalf by your tenants, you can hire a property manager to collect rents and handle some day-to-day -day for you and free up some of your time. You can definitely delegate those things, but never stop managing your own property. Never take the, your own eye off the ball. If you do, if you take your eye off the ball, trust me, it will hit you in the head. I'm Chris Story, and you're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, How to Create Wealth Where You Are with What You've Got. In a moment, I'm going to explain why 7,000 years ago, Egyptians Shave their eyebrows when we return. Stick around. You're listening to the Backyard Millionaire Radio Show, How to Create Wealth Where You Are with What You've Got. I'm Chris Story. 7,000 years ago, Egyptians shaved their eyebrows for a very, very important reason. Now, you can imagine it's 7,000 years ago, Egypt. It's pretty important to have a cat in your household. They held a very sacred place, actually, for every home in Egypt back then because they were able to. The house cat actually kept away disease. That's right, they, they got rid of the rats and rodents that carry many, many diseases. They got rid of snakes and scorpions. And I don't mean the cool kind that will rock you like a hurricane. I'm talking about scorpions that will destroy you in your sleep. So cats held an incredibly high place within the Egyptian household. So, so much so 
that when they lost one of their house cats, the homeowner, the cat's owner and caretaker would literally shave off their eyebrows in honor of the life of that cat. Now, the mourning, how long do you mourn a cat 7,000 years ago in Egypt? Well, you mourn the cat's life as long as it takes until your eyebrows grew back. That is dedication. We have King Charles Cavalier Spaniels at home, Reagan and Cooper. And I, I must tell you, well, a friend of mine said the other day that they will go back to this particular restaurant when they take the sign down that <laughs> says no dogs allowed. And I said to her, I said, but you don't have dogs. You have Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. So that, that's how important that dog is to me, that breed of dog, that they're not really dogs. They're like our children. Don't, don't tell my children I said that, but they're like our children. And yet I, one day, God forbid something happens, either Reagan or Cooper, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not shaving my eyebrows. What's the velocity of your money? What's the velocity of wealth? Some people get it wrong. And some people get it right. Keith Cunningham said, in fact, though, speed kills wealth. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Look for fun and feeling groovy. That's right, feeling groovy. Keith Cunningham said it best. True wealth, he said, is built slowly. That's the premise of this whole entire program of creating wealth where you are with what you've got in your own backyard is that it's a slow process. It's deliberate and slow, can be sped up a little by leverage. You don't have to wait until you've got every single shekel set aside to buy a property. Use leverage smartly. But back to what Keith said, Keith Cunningham said. Now, he's the original Rich Dad out of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Robert Kiyosaki's original book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, written in 1995 with uh, Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter, Keith Cunningham, I saw him in Las Vegas in 2008, and he's proud to tell you, he in fact was the rich dad. So Robert Kiyosaki came to him, according to Keith, and said, hey, I want to put together this program, building a game called Cash Flow, and I'm putting together a pamphlet that'll go with it, which by the way, later became the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he said, Keith, I need some of your advice, because Keith was a, an incredible real estate investor. And so he helped him put together, and Keith said, everything you see within the Rich Dad section of the book is coming from me. Anyway, I digress. Keith said, true wealth is built slowly. Speed and greed necessitate aggressive leverage and increase the odds of catastrophe. It's way better to go slower and avoid the do-over. Now, how does Keith know what he's talking about? Well, he was worth over $100 million up until the run-up of the fall of 1989. So he, he, he built closer to $200 million portfolio, of which he had about $100 million in equity until he didn't. And he built that in a relatively rapid rate of five to seven years of really, I mean, hockey stick growth. And then he lost it all. And, and in fact, he went a little further. He'll tell you that, in fact, he didn't just lose it all. He dug the hole. He got to zero and kept digging. The problem wasn't that he kept digging, but Uncle Sam wrote, reached into his pockets and was digging and dug out $9 million more million. So Keith had successfully negotiated with all these banks that he was way over leveraged with and built up all this, this wealth in this portfolio, running up to the crash, didn't see it coming. He had very tricky over leveraged loans that became due 
and destroyed him. However, he, he was able to negotiate and get down to zero, sold everything, got down to zero where he had nothing but owed nothing. And that's when Uncle Sam came along and said, by the way, you know all those deals you just got from the banks? We're, we're actually accruing that as income that you've received, even though you didn't see a dollar of it. We're counting it as income. And you, my friend, Keith Cunningham, you owe $9 million in income tax on which income you never received. So he went a little bit further. So this guy knows what he's talking about. You get rich slowly. If somebody's selling you a get-rich-quick program, I would want to know, first of all, is that, with which the, is that the way with which you got rich? Did, you, did the program you're selling me, is that what got you rich? Or did you get rich selling me the program? I mean, the thing that within the program, is that what, so it's not about speed. It's about the velocity of moving correctly. So my take is this. Avoid over-leverage, but don't avoid leverage altogether. We're going to go over the, the millionaire maker formula here in just a little bit. And at the heart of it is, a, is the emblematic gold shovel for a reason. I'll give you that formula in a minute. But uh, I want to share one more quote from Keith Cunningham. That is this. Raw land eats three meals a day. <laughs> right? Isn't that so great? Can't you just see your raw land snacking down on a Big Mac or a filet mignon, depending upon what and where you've purchased and how much leverage you've got? Three meals a day means raw land. Don't put nothing in your pocket. It just takes out unless you've leased it or you've done something else. So here's my take on all of that. Grow wealth in your own backyard slowly. Plant seeds just like you would a carrot or cabbage or kale and watch it grow. Tend it, water it, take care, take care in the spring to plant, take care all summer long, keep the bugs and weeds away. In the fall, you can harvest. Don't sell it carry yourself through the winter and avoid leverage on raw land if you can help it. Sometimes it's such a great deal. Sometimes it's just so amazing. You cannot help it. You're going to leverage some raw land. If you go to my website, ilovehomeralaska.com and click on podcast, you'll find a podcast with which I tell the story of how we turn $10,000 into a quarter million. And spoiler alert, it involves leveraging raw land. But here's the thing. It was a short-term play. And so leverage raw land if you have to on a short-term, as long as you've got a backup plan and you have the capital to feed it those proverbial three meals a day. Now let's compare commercial real estate to residential real estate. There, I've got a formula for you I want to share, and I think it could make all the difference in your portfolio. You are listening to The Backyard Millionaire. I'm Chris Story. This is the show how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. And have fun doing it, by the way. Can I just add that right here? If you're not having fun with your real estate investments, you're doing it wrong. Stay tuned. All right, how do you compare commercial real estate to residential real estate? This is a frequently asked question. As a broker, I'm asked this question pretty often. As an investor, people also want to know. So I'm going to share it with you. Commercial rentals, I would tell you, are an excellent investment and have some incredible upside, some incredible benefits, and can outperform, yes, outperform residential sometimes. But here's where I'd want to put a pin in that. A little asterisk should go right here and say, however, when the tide turns, the commercial will fall. In fact, there's an article in Forbes magazine a friend sent me the other day about a, a billionaire in North Carolina. 
He's got um, hundreds of storage units. Speaking of storage, he's got hundreds of storage units. He has 13,000 apartment units, I believe. He's got a fortune invested in residential real estate. But here's what he's looking at right now. From where he sits in 2023, he's holding a little powder dry because guess what he thinks is about to collapse? The commercial real estate market. And he's holding some cash ready to pounce. He's ready to go in. He's ready to invest in the commercial when it does fall. And like the cradle, it will fall. It, every market is cyclical, goes up and down. But commercial real estate can have a, a it's like the bellwether of the economy and it's the first that's going to go down. Here's the difference with residential and commercial. Even if the economy falters, no matter what happens, people got to have a place to live, period. People will always need a place to live. And if you're the one providing the supply for that demand, you will win in residential real estate. So my version of diversity within your portfolio is that you, you should have, and I did just should, I know that you shouldn't say should, but I'm shooting you, you should have an 80-20 split. 80% of your portfolio should be residential, 20% should be commercial. Because you're listening to this show, The Backyard Millionaire, meaning you want to invest where you are with what you've got. And you do not want to over leverage, you don't want to be over invested in a commercial sector that could falter, could go upside down, could go neutral, for a number of years. When's the last time you went to a mall? It's probably been a little while. And so you don't want to over leverage in that commercial sector in your own backyard. And so that, that's been my successful formula. That's been my take on it is to have not more than 20% of our portfolio tied up in commercial. So not only can you weather a storm with this ratio, but you can win in any market anywhere, anytime if you've got no more than 20% commercial. If you are, however, averse completely, completely to the concept of anything that's got a toilet, you know, that you're responsible for. And that's one of the things that some people will tell you, look, with my commercial rentals, when the toilet goes, and if it's a triple net lease or something where the tenant's responsible for, for improvements and for care and, and keeping of, of the utilities, all the stuff, is on them essentially. They almost act like they own it. Uh, they're not gonna call you when the toilet goes bad. And by the way, with commercial, they're running their store, they want it to look good, they're kind of constantly be improving, they're not gonna let little things go, where sometimes residential can, sometimes residential tenants will let some things go and, and not necessarily put their own sweat or money into your property. I get the difference, but um, I really would challenge you to think in terms of keeping that commercial to a very low margin just in case things turn around for you. That, that's, that's my take on it. Even though I know sometimes commercial can be less, quote, emotional. So that's what some people say is, that, well, the residential can be emo emotional. But I'm here to tell you that if something goes sideways in the economy and your commercial tenant is having a difficulty, it's going to be emotional as well. It really will. Hey, I've got a survey I want to share with you about how badly, apparently, according to this survey, how badly you misunderstand the real estate. That's not coming from me. That's the survey saying you do not understand the real estate market writ large across the United States of America. Plus, we've got some incredible quotes that I think will inspire you. And we're going to peek inside a millionaire library when we return here to the Backyard Millionaire. Stick around. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. I'm Chris Story, your host for great adventures in real estate. 
been seeing it for 15 years, and I'm going to repeat it right here. You really can make a million bucks in your own backyard. In just a moment, we're going to peek inside the millionaire library. Plus, I've got a survey that might surprise you about what you don't know, according to the survey, what you do not know about the real estate market across America. You know, I was complaining the other day that the dryer has been shrinking my clothes. It's just, it's weird. It's getting weird. And then it turns out, though, it's been the refrigerator all along. Now I understand. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you get it, right? What you tried to say to me how you suffered for your sanity yes. and how you tried to set them free they would not listen they did not know how that traveling van gogh show perhaps a nice rhyme that traveling van gogh show was so amazing i mean i've always admired starry night some of his self portraits vincent van gogh didn't know much about his life really other than what he cut his ear off to impress a woman but i mean come on it was a different time. They didn't have TikTok and Facebook back then. And, uh, but just reading about his life and, and seeing how many paintings he did, I had no clue about. He's a, a real genius. Which I think, as I future cast and, and look into my field, I think will be said of me. the artist's loving hand, now I understand. I know somebody said it. Chris, that was you. All right. I want to talk real with you. And I don't want, I'm not claiming this. I'm not suggesting you don't know what you're talking about. That's not me. Survey said. Aha. It's the survey. Don't blame me. The survey says you don't have a clue about the real estate market. Well, here's what it actually says. It says you're woefully. That's so rude. You are apparently woefully misinformed about the nation's housing market. That's right. Even as millions of you prepare to buy a home. So 28 million of you are going to buy a home in the calendar year 2023. Think about that. 28 million of you are going to buy a home this year. NerdWallet, according to NerdWallet, they did a massive survey. And here is what the results are. You hope to spend not more than $269,000 on that home. <laughs> well, I mean, you could hope for that, but that leaves you 100000 plus short of the median home sale price in America today, which is 388000 So I bring this up to say this. You need to understand, as you become a backyard millionaire, you become an investor, you become a mental millionaire first, then you become the millionaire and you own at least four homes. Good luck trying to stop there. You're going to keep going. I'm convinced of that. But before you do any of that, you need to understand the market as best you can. A little better than this survey would suggest we need to understand the market. But beyond the market, you need to understand your market. So there's a guy called Joe. What was his name? Joe, anyway, he came here. But I saw him out at a convention in uh, Las Vegas, and which is where all the good conventions are, I think. Anyway, so he said uh, to a group of us, us real estate brokers, he said, you know, I mean, you know, when somebody says, how's the market, they don't care about the market. They really don't. They're actually asking, how's my market? 
How am I doing? How's my investment doing? How's my home value? How's my equity? That's what we really want to know when we say, how's the market? So I suggest to you that you understand the market best you can, read all the periodicals, read the, the major uh, news organizations such as Forbes, uh, Wall Street Journal, get as informed as you can about, quote, the market, what's coming. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. What's happening with interest rates? Listen to this show, The Backyard Millionaire. But then understand your market where you are because that's where you're going to make the wealth, remember, is where you are with what you've got. So you, within your market, within the market around you, there are multiples of markets. And so you have to understand those. And the best way possible to understand your market is to have a realtor, a real estate broker in your tribe and lean on them because that's what we do. We help you understand not just the market, but your market. You're listening to the Backyard Millionaire Radio Show. You really can make a million bucks in your own backyard. Okay. All right, you're not on fire. I knew it, you're lying. There is no fire. Come back here. But something looks wrong. I mean, he's running around like like he's on fire. Oh, my God, help me. I don't want to die. Oh, stop, stop and roll. You're not on fire, Ricky Bobby. I'm on fire. You're not on fire. Ricky Bobby reminds me of a child, and children see magic, Chris Moore said. They see magic because they're looking for it. There's a lot of frequently asked questions. I could do an entire show just on frequently asked questions. But this is probably one of the most frequently asked questions as a real estate broker that I'll get over the course of a year. Chris, are there any properties rent to own right now? Are there any lease options? Depends on how it's put. It's the same thing. And the answer is definitively and almost always no. That's almost always the answer is no. Uh, there just aren't a lot of, or it's a really rare thing, a very scarce thing within any real estate market to find somebody who wants to rent to own to you. It can happen, but it's pretty darn rare. That's one answer to the question. Chris, are there any rent to owns or lease options available? Now, here's the longer answer to that question. Yes. What? Is this guy huffing glue? What's he talking about? Here's what I mean by yes. Rent to own is an opportunity that is always available to you. And I'll put it a different way. It's rent like you own. If you rent like you own, one day you will. So if you treat your apartment or you treat your rental house as if you own it and take responsibility and further, I'd say, take an interest in the property, you will one day, if not that property, own a property, at least one. For example, this is, <laughs> I, I kind of laugh at this. I make myself laugh when I think about this, but it's not funny. Let's say that utilities are included in your rent. If you're renting, you'd like to rent to own, and your utilities are included in your rent, okay, don't use the window as your thermostat. Do not open the window because it's hot inside. Turn the thermostat down. Turn the heat down. Don't open the window. That's not renting to own. If you take that little responsibility, then you're just pushing off the inevitability of when you'll own. It's going to be pushed down the road further. Take responsibility. Here's another one. 
If your, if your toilet starts to run, go catch it. <laughs> Tell somebody, even if you don't know how to fix it, if you hear the toilet running and the water, let's say the water and sewer is included in your rent, and you hear that toilet running and you don't say something, you don't do something, you are costing them, your landlord, a fortune in water and possibly damage and possibly uh, destroying a septic system if you're on a septic. If you're, if you're outside in a, in a rural area. So take responsibility and take an interest and one day you too will own. Wait, wait, don't sell me. Well, okay, sell me if you know the answer to these two questions. Before you sell a property, before you put your property on the market, answer these two questions. Do you really know what it's worth? Can you definitively say it's worth X, Y, or Z? You have to be able to answer that question. Before you sell, you gotta know what it's worth. That's why you have to have in your tribe a realtor, a trusted realtor, an advisor, somebody that's gonna steer you in the right direction towards value. Remember, fair market value is the least a willing seller will sell for and accept. And it's the most a willing buyer, non-compelled willing buyer will pay. So if you don't know what the value is, why would you even think about selling it? Absolutely not. So know what it's worth before you even decide to put it on the market. Number two, know what you're gonna do with the proceeds and what the proceeds are gonna do for you. What are you gonna do with this money? If you have a plan B, maybe you're upscaling in your home, maybe you're selling an investment property and you're gonna move it into another investment, you're laddering up, so to speak, hopefully not laddering down, but laddering up, you can use what's called a 1031 exchange program. You need to get to know that. You need to know, okay, what's my capital gains tax going to be? What's my exposure here? What's my recapture with the IRS? What have I written down through depreciation? Um, what am I going to owe the IRS? Get with your tax preparer and figure out whether a 1031 exchange is right for you. You can exchange all of the capital out of this property into the next property tax deferred. Oh, no, it's not tax free. Uncles always eat. They're always going to eat. Let your kids sort it out. Don't worry about it. Defer. Yeah, 1031 exchange. So wait, wait, don't sell me until you know what I'm worth and what you're going to do with the proceeds and what the proceeds are going to do for you. That's the secret to selling like a millionaire. I want to talk about your library real quick, your millionaire library. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> really? People know me. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's in your library? What's in your millionaire library? Remember, a millionaire library could be a plank between a couple of concrete blocks. It don't matter what it looks like. It matters what's in your library. Here's a couple of must-haves in your millionaire library. Number one, you've got to have The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson. It's a must. You've got to have that in your... You can't consider yourself having a millionaire library until you've got The Richest Man in Babylon in there, plus a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I don't get bogged down with who's this witch dad and I don't care. It's a great book. It's a great mind expanding book about money, wealth and accumulation. 
That's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, and Sharon Lecter. Then there's a little book, a little bouncy book called The Backyard Millionaire by Chris Story. You gotta have that in your library. Come on, work with me. And then Creating Wealth by Robert G. Allen. By the way, he's gonna be on this program as a guest in March. Robert G. Allen, Creating Wealth. And then Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Stay tuned. Much more to come here on The Backyard Millionaire. We'll see you next week. They say love is more precious than gold. 